Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Collect and Spec podcast, the podcast all about the world of collectibles, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm one of your hosts, Zakiel, otherwise known as Rainy Day Collectibles Online. And with me, as always, is Chris, otherwise known as Wolf of Tin Street. How's it going? It's going well. Uh, <laughs> I'm still very excited about the, the guests we got going on this week. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm actually really excited about the content of what we're talking about. So uh, without further ado, I think, uh, Cardi C, we're having you on. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself and, t- and tell people where they they can find you and whatnot. Yeah, thanks for having me on tonight, guys. So my name's Chris. You probably know me as Cardi C. I have a YouTube channel called Cardi C Sports Cards. Uh, It really sits at the cross-section of collectibles as a hobby, but also innovation in collectibles and alternative assets. Um, So that's sort of where I find myself being able to bring value to the hobby and the community. And I get a lot of of joy (laughs) out of sort of going through prepping my videos and releasing them to the masses. Cool, man. Yeah, so I found you, I think you posted, you had a video with Filmington last week, maybe a week and a half ago, um, discussing the news of the Collector's Universe acquisition, which is the topic that we're going to get into today. Um, I think kind of the best way to kind of start the discussion first off before we get into that is what brought you into the world of, you know, collectibles and sports cards and, uh, you know, kind of beyond that, the investing element itself. Yeah, so I'll try and keep this short because like everyone's uh, hobby origin story, it could go on forever. But I collected as a kid and I looked back um, sort of as a young adult at what my collection consisted of. And there was a lot of stuff that I really didn't care about. There was lots of Eric Chavez and Maglio Ordonez and Garrett <laughs> Anderson cards um, who were like good players of the day, but like I didn't really care about them at all. <laughs> Um, and then a couple of years ago, I was actually on Reddit, just like browsing the baseball card subreddit. And I found a product called clearly authentic. And I was like, wow, that looks really cool. I wonder how much a box of that is. And it's a single, uh, encased autographed card that tops comes out with. And I opened up the Amazon app, saw that it was and I'm like, man, fuck that. That's too expensive. (laughs) So I have my phone up. I go to try to hit back to the Reddit app. And when I do that, I hit um, one click buy by accident. So two days later, the box comes in. I get home, I don't know, 12 31 o'clock in the morning after a late night at work. I'm like, I don't want to spend the time uh, to package this up and send it back. Let's just rip it open. And I pulled this card right here. So this is a reprint of Buster Posey's rookie card, numbered out of 45. Quickly looked it up on eBay and saw it was going for $250 to $300. Sold the card, realized that was a mistake because this is my origin story. So I needed to go out and buy a different (laughs) copy. Um, But from there, I uh, I got the bug. I've always been into sort of the analytics and the stats side of sports, your batting average, home run, slugging, and then sort of this new world of um, advanced statistics. And I feel like being able to connect sports, sports cards and the market dynamics that sort of connect them um, really sort of intrigued me and interested me um, Mm -hmm. as I was starting out in the hobby. Cool, man. Um, also, as far as you're willing, 
you know, uh, you talk a lot on your channel about being an accountant. Uh, what's your background and kind of how did that get tied into, you know, your collectible endeavors? Sure. So I'm a very risk averse person, like S and P 500 ETFs index funds. <laughs> yes. Yes. I swear to God, like as you're speaking, you're like becoming my best friend. <laughs> so like, like uh, stats, risk averse. I'm just like, yep. So, um, I have, uh, a bachelor's degree in management, a, man a, a master's degree in accounting, and a, a certified public accountant. I work for a big four uh, public accounting firm on the audit side of things and also help out with sort of their innovation type work. So I look at numbers all day. I think about business strategy and how it impacts the day-to-day -day operations um, at a macro level, but then I'm also in the details of how the day-to-day -day business is uh, is sort of going along. So that left brain side of me is a natural fit for the X's and O's of sort of the hobby market dynamics. And I would say that on the collector to investor spectrum, I'm definitely a collector, but seeing all these people out there make a shitload of money um, made me jealous. So, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the series, but back in January, I came out with sort of a mini series on my channel with the challenge of taking $200 and flipping my way into $1,000 by the end of the year. Uh, the goal was, let's be fully transparent. I'm going to share my strategies and we're just going to see if this is possible based on someone that's been in the hobby for a couple of years. Um, got lucky with a couple of flips and hit my goal within two months. Um, I think it doesn't sound like luck. <laughs> yes. I, it, I mean, it was a little bit of luck. I'm sure we'll touch on it, but the Gary V sort of parabolic increase we saw back in March and April at the start of COVID right. had a lot to do with it. Uh, but that $200 currently sits at around 2K in profit and another $2,500, $3,000 in inventory that I have left to, to move. So um, it that being said, it takes a lot of time. If anyone thinks that sports cards is like a get rich quick scheme, if we take the profit there and the sort of investment or the assets that I currently have on hand and divide that by the number of hours that I've poured into just like looking on eBay and offer up and Facebook marketplace, you're making less than minimum wage. So that's just like a disclaimer. It's great because it's a hobby and I enjoy, to, I enjoy doing it. And um, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out because I think there's a lot of new blood out in the, uh, the content creation community that are creating a false narrative that anyone can come in and do this, but it's, uh, it's tough stuff and it takes a lot of work. I think that leads in really well to the, the next question I want to throw your way is what are your feelings about the recent frenzy over the past two to three years of just like niche communities getting an influx of people strictly just just for profit, essentially? Yeah, I think, I mean, we could go a bunch of different ways with this, right? We could analogize it to like the shoe market. And if we like jump back to the OG shoe collectors, They've been so far pushed out of their original hobby. But what happens is new people come in, collectors have to adapt, and they typically stay one step ahead. 
um, they'll find things that they enjoy collecting. And what we have to remember is that these markets get so hot and they can do well because there's a collector at the end of the road that's looking to pick up that piece, that collectible, that card to add it with to their collection. The minute there's no longer a collector that wants to add that to their PC is the minute that you lose the value for that collectible. So I think um, it's, it's awesome. It's exciting to see these parabolic rises. That's why you see so many new eyes coming into the hobby. But um, every once in a while, it's good to have sort of a healthy check to make sure that it's not getting too hot, the bubble's not getting too deep, and that you're building some some sticky people coming into the hobby that aren't going to just flee at the first sign of sort of a market correction. What do you think um, are kind of the pros and cons of, uh, you know, and we'll kind of continue to get into this greater topic as the episode goes on, but as uh, large investors, or uh, I guess as the hobbies continue to grow and expand the ceiling on collector, I guess, spending power continues to grow. So whether they're just people who happen to have really high incomes or institutional, um, you know, investors coming into the hobbies, uh, you know, what are, I guess, the, the pros and cons of that at a macro level? Yeah, it, it definitely sort of rising tides lifts all boats. Um, if you're looking at it from like a wax perspective, if you're looking at it from a singles perspective, there's definitely different stories to be had. Um, I don't know how familiar with sports cards you guys are, but the biggest problem eight months ago was the distribution channels where big breakers were coming in and they were getting 50, 60 cases of a product from their distributors, direct from the manufacturers. And then your hobby shops um, couldn't get a single case. They might get half a case or they might get allocated a couple boxes. When you see big people, when I say big people, I mean very wealthy individuals coming into the hobby and throwing their weight around. Those hobby shops aren't going to be able to keep up and you're going to see them go by the wayside. Now that's that's on the negative side of things. On the positive side of things, and this is sort of one of the hot takes I wanted to bring to you guys, <laughs> is there's renewed or there's new focus and attention on the hobby and with that is going to bring a level of institutional investment and in innovation that we have never seen before. So we can sort of dive into that a little bit later when we talk about CLTC, but it's not just about collector's universe. It's about everything that the hobby touches and how it can create the collector experience or the user experience better. And to your point, I mean, your earlier example of sneakers was perfect where 90 sneaker era collectors like pre stock X and post stock X might as well be two completely different hobbies. Mm -hmm. So for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit of a pivot here, but just uh, on a way to just get, you know, get to know you better. Uh, what inspired you to make your YouTube channel? Um, honestly, I can't remember. I think <laughs> I was watching um, nice, like thanks, a couple, a couple breakers and I said to myself, like, I can do this. And my first couple of videos were like, I was holding my phone up, recording a box break vertically, <laughs> um, like 
content creation 101, like put your phone in landscape mode. And then watching those videos back, the content isn't engaging. It isn't, it isn't interesting to watch. There's not good commentary. I'm not witty enough to come up with humor on the spot. It's any humor I do have is like self-deprecating. Um, but as I sort of continued it, I saw how bad I was at it and the opportunity for growth and improvement. And I sort of get addicted to different hobbies, different ideas. In high school, it was RuneScape. A couple of years, I got very into golf um, and the latest sort of crazes, sports cards and YouTube content creation. So I've gotten hooked on becoming a better video editor, mastering videography, graphic design. Uh, they're all areas that I've had interest in and sports cards gives me a way to sort of work on that um, in terms of like personal development. And I mean, I've done something right because I just passed the thousand subscriber threshold, but along the way, um, met a lot of great people that have made the hobby just that much more fulfilling for, at, a, at a personal level. And speaking about a thousand subscribers, um, you know, how is, I saw you posted on Instagram that you got a thousand subscriber cake. <laughs> yeah. So my, uh, my wife and her sister saw that I was at like nine ninety five, and because we've been stuck inside for COVID, they started texting each other and they're like, we should re- do something really big for Chris. So I actually have the balloons right here they got me like a big 1k balloon and made me some cookies that has my logo on it but like (laughs) that's what you really got to do you got to find the loved ones in your life that can support your passions and your hobbies because like it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to put out content on a consistent basis i'm talking six eight hours a weekend And that's all time that my wife wants to spend with me or she wants me outside mowing the lawn or, or doing house projects or something, but her being able to, uh, to support (laughs) me in that endeavor, it just like, it means the world from my relationship with her, but also my ability to like continue to improve on the content that I create, create and, uh, deliver to the community. So Ooh, Dude, that, that's stuff. fantastic, Chris, because as you said that, my fiance is on the other side of the room giving me a funny look, twisting her head to the side, <laughs> going like, I deserve props and dinner for this. Yeah, <laughs> I actually, um, I'm in a group message with Filmington and a couple other guys, and I sent them a video. And he goes, I walked up to my wife and said she owes me three years worth of cake, and she looked at me like I had five heads. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. Um, what are you, you so my interpretation of your channel is like kind of an analysis, like a channel that breaks down more the, some of the more technical financial stuff. Like you've shared a couple of models, you have, um, uh, you literally go over the financial statements, you know, a couple of times of, of CLCT. Yep. What are your goals for the channel as a content creator? Are you looking to be a box breaker, just like, you know, overview, a mix of everything? You know, what, what does that look like out of curiosity? Yeah, I think, um, my viewers and the people that are commenting on my videos have great questions on things that they want to see and things that 
I've never even looked into before. So discovering new aspects of the hobby is always top of mind for me. We have like fractional investments, um, fractional investment platforms like Rally Road and Collectible. Um, and that's sort of the first iteration mm. of institutional investment coming in and buying into really big cards. But beyond watching a couple of videos and reading an article, I don't really know too much about it. So that's something I'd like to dive into. Um, I bought a pretty big PC card yesterday and I was looking at the pop report and the pop report doesn't make any sense compared to the other parallels. Diving into why that exists and whether there's a market inefficiency or whether there's just a condition in, uh, issue or a sensitivity issue. Those are the types of things that like intrigue me. And that's how I want to spend my free time, like diving into that stuff. Um, I'll never become a channel that rips wax because I, I, I just don't have the, uh, that risk appetite for it. Like I have, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars worth of wax that has been burning a hole in my pocket to rip. But like, <laughs> I look at my past box breaks and I get 5% return back on them. So I'd rather sort of take those, those boxes and invest them back into something um, like a bigger PC card. But that's talking around your original question. The future for the channel is just more of this sort of financial analysis, talking to people about how they can build their collection in a thoughtful way. Um, don't just listen to the talking heads out there that are trying to pump and dump a player because um, you're going to end up like I did after my childhood collection, like with a bunch of Eric Chavez and Maglio Ordonez. <laughs> you're going to look back on your collecting period and say, I just spent thousands of dollars over the last couple of years and none of these cards bring me joy. And that's how cards end up in a shoebox, in a parent's basement, and then eventually thrown out years later. And that's what we want to avoid. So if I can sprinkle in some of that knowledge, focus on some of the like innovation and investment opportunities um, as it relates to innovation in the hobby, that's what I'm really hoping for, for the channel. That's awesome, man. Little, little prudent uh, finance advice when we're, we're putting uh, a lot more money now that we're making money into collectible mm -hmm. hobbies sounds uh, always is a welcome thing here. Uh, just moving a little bit further, how many different sports cars do you do you collect? So I'm uh, from just outside Boston, so I'm a big Boston sports team oh, guy. Yeah. So rough this last past decade. <laughs> I know. I know. Interviews are. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm a big Red Sox guy. My like PC players are. You're not no, a Bruins my, fan. Are you a Bruins fan? I am a Bruins fan. Oh, I'm a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, so you know how hard that is for me, right? Oh, eh? I work with uh, a bunch of people from Toronto, and all I got to yeah. say is I'm, I'm sorry. Um, they let you Every down. Time they you guys beat us with our own goaltender. I die inside. I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah. Um, that Mitch Marner contract isn't great, but <laughs> you guys will overcome. Um, <laughs> it's, it's mainly baseball. For me, um, I think I've taken the Patriots for granted. I totally missed the boat on on any Tom Brady cards. Um, really enjoy basketball, but with basketball prices the way they are, I'm gonna have to like slowly add those cards to my collection. So it's really um, 
sort of Boston sports baseball and then the, uh, the big stars of, uh, of Boston teams. Can you give us the overview of kind of how each uh, sports market works? Like what is the, what's the high level differences between basketball, baseball, football cards, kind of that kind of thing? Yeah, that is a loaded question in yeah. a, a podcast episode all in itself. But I guess at a high level, um, right now, the most attention is on basketball. That's what the new blood is coming in and they're focusing on because that's what the personalities are focusing on. So if you're looking for like the highest upside and the highest potential, basketball offers that right now. But on a transaction volume perspective, baseball always has and always will be king. Uh, baseball cards, sports cards, and trading cards in general are sort of ubiquitous with tops. When someone says baseball cards, they might be referring to all sports cards or sports cards, they might be referring to baseball cards. Uh, so baseball, it's a little, it's a little different. Um, you don't see as high highs in basketball for your superstar players um, with the exception of like, you have had the Mike Trout Bowman Chrome Superfractor just sell for just northward of $4 million. Um, but typically what you'll see is a handful of players will hold the majority of the market cap in the hobby with pitchers getting no love. But what makes baseball unique is that like how long players are in the farm system. So prospecting starts when guys are 16 and they aren't going to make the major leagues until they're 20 or 21. So you can make a lot of money or you can lose a lot of money before a guy even sees a major league pitch. Um, football, it's all about quarterbacks and position players. Um, well, skill players, not position players. Outside of quarterbacks, no one really holds value. People don't care about defensive players. Um, running backs are hot the year they're drafted, and then two or three years later, they don't retain any value. You can go out and buy like an LT rookie card for 60, 70 bucks, and that's what it would cost to go out and buy a bowl bowl rookie. Um, just like the comparison across sports is really tough. It's great for collectors if you really like defensive football players because you can pick stuff up really, really cheap. Um, and then I, I do collect hockey, but I'm not as familiar with the, um, the market dynamics there just because there's not as many content creators that are really pumping out informative sort of pros and cons of what's going on. But I mean, my understanding is the cup and young guns are key and everything else is sort of put out by upper deck and like you can pick up whatever you want. But if you're looking for something that holds that long-term value, it's the cup RPA and then highly graded young guns. So that's sort of my best attempt to just distill at a high level, each of the major sports. Um, and what was that? Two, three minutes. <laughs> yeah, dude. I love that you included hockey in your major sports. You're already in my heart. Uh, <laughs> Next uh, up, have, I was hmm? going to say, um, people are also sleeping on F1. I don't know if you guys are racing fans, um, but f1 racing is it's gotten very very big since the start of covid with 
sport, like professional sporting events not happening at the end of COVID, ESPN made like a last minute deal with, I think it was Sky Sports to get an exclusive US uh, broadcasting deal throughout the summer. So they've been airing races every Sunday morning. It's usually Sunday morning because the races are in Europe Mm -hmm. and in Russia and in Asia. Um, But they've built a massive US following. It's sort of a high class NASCAR with more reality stars in it. Um, There's lots of drama with the personalities on the teams. And there's a lot of strategy that actually goes into the racing. Um, Tops is coming out with the first ever uh, Formula One racing products this year. They had Tops Dynasty Formula One that sold out pretty quickly. You could get boxes of Tops Chrome pre-ordered for $105 back in August and September. And those boxes are currently sitting at $225 and they're not set to come out until uh, the first or second week of January. So if you're looking, like I, I try to learn some new sports, cricket, soccer, F1. <laughs> if you're looking for a new sport, um, it's entertaining and you can get in on the ground floor of sort of the trading card side of things as well. Yeah, that <laughs> that definitely leads into the another question that I have to ask, which uh, is reminding me a lot of a, of a new TCG called Flesh and Blood lately. But uh, do you have any interest in just TCGs in general outside of sports or, or what are your thoughts on that? So I was an OG Pokemon player and my cards are beat to shit, but I got um, I got a <laughs> stack well loved, here. Not beat, they're well loved. Yeah, we got a, uh, a base set Mewtwo here. Let's see what else we got. A Nido King, pre-release Dark Gyarados, uh, Fossil Gengar, False, Fossil Muck. A lot of the originals, but uh, these are like fr- from my childhood. Um, like you said, very well loved. I like switched. I graduated from Pokemon into Yu-Gi-Oh! So I got some Yu-Gi-Oh! cards. And then um, I played Magic with some friends when I visited them out in, uh, out in Colorado, sort of between the skiing and snowboarding, we would just go back to partake in some adults activities and just play lots of magic. <laughs> um, but other than that, I don't, I don't have a strong desire to, to collect them at this point, just because it doesn't elicit the same emotion for me and the same connection that I have to sports cards. Um, and especially with the recent attention and spotlight on Pokemon for people that aren't like into trading card collecting or buying or selling, it's very important to ask yourself, like, if I didn't want something yesterday, do I really want it today? Yeah. So like, I would love like Squirtle, War Turtle, Blastoise in first edition or like Shadowless, copies of each of like the original Pokemon and their evolution of each other. But do I want that because it brings back memories of my childhood or do I want it because Logan Paul just ripped open a first edition booster box? Like when it comes to things that are getting hyped up, I will take like, take a breath, give it 24, give it 48 hours. And if you really want to pull the trigger on something, then like clearer heads will prevail. 
you can get those cards. Just wait a couple months. They're not going anywhere and you'll get them at discount prices and you're not going to wake up two, three months from now and regret uh, buying a card at the top of the market. It sounds, uh, it sounds very reminiscent of, of what you were saying about defensive players, right? Wait one, two years, you'll get them at a deal. It's, I, I feel like that's almost a universal piece of advice. If you're just patient, mm-hmm. what you're buying when you buy in at a hype is you're just buying time more than anything, right? Mm-hmm. And I also think from sort of that left brain analytical side of things, when you see big spikes in the market, I try to look for a comparable card that has seen similar market activity. So if we're talking specifically about Pokemon, um, Pokemon is like one of the biggest and most recognizable brands uh, in the universe. Um, But if there is anything that's seen a similar parabolic rise, it would be soccer cards and basketball cards. And if we're looking at a graph of the way that prices went for those, it goes way, way, way up. It hits the peak. You got all these content creators covering it. And then it crashes down to where it was beforehand. You want to be the guy that buys it down here or over here, not up here. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually really, that. <laughs> it gets a little different with other TCGs, but just in general, along those lines, when you're, when you're tracing the plateau, what are your favorite platforms in terms of, of buying it? And, and then obviously I think more importantly, selling on uh, to kind of play that game. So I would defer to you guys on this one as it relates to trading cards, um, trading card games, because the sports card market is just dominated by eBay. There's some, I'd call them newcomers. There's ComC, there's Starstock, there's SportLots, MySlabs, but they all have their pros and cons. eBay, I was the victim of a $2,000 chargeback that took me six months to clear up. I ultimately won, but under their new like managed payments platform, that $2,000 wouldn't have come out of my PayPal. It would have come directly out of my bank account. So like when you're dealing with high dollar transactions, eBay is not the place to go. You deal with Facebook marketplace and you got scammers galore, never send anything friends and family or through cash app or through Venmo um, Com C, do you guys use Com C at all or mm-hmm. have heard of Com C? Their, their whole shtick is like you can send us your cards, we'll hold on to them, we'll scan it into our system, you can reprice them, and then you sort of have a mailbox, um, and we'll keep your cards here until you want to send them. You can save so on, yep, gotcha, you can gotcha. save on shipping instead of paying 50 cents a card, you can pay five cents a card and then get all 200 cards you bought sent back. But with COVID, they're running at a four or five month shipping delay. So it's taking people six months who buy cards on their platform to get their cards back to their houses. And then- Wait, 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 hold on. Cards are all in in warehouse already, right? Mm -hmm. Why is it? So is it just due to the volume of cards being taken out of the warehouse in limited capacity? Yeah. I see. So, I mean, we could go down a ComC rabbit hole as well, but I think the gist of it is when COVID first hit in like the Pacific Northwest, there were um, like municipal restrictions on who they could have into the building. 
and they fell so far behind on requested shipments and they haven't been able to claw back out of the hole. They're in Um, Redmond or something, right? Yep. hmm, I don't know what they're doing. So yeah, that, I mean, that is the, that's the golden question. They haven't, they haven't been able to recover. And then um, you've seen Starstock. I don't know if that rings a bell, but they're sort of the new kid on the block. They announced the other day that um, they raised an additional million and a half dollars in series funding and brought in Kevin Durant as an investor. Um, But my gripe with it is the platform is really clunky. If you're in it for flipping cards, you have to click six or seven times to see what you bought a card for. Then you have to click another six or seven times to reprice a card. I have 200 cards on the platform. It would take me three or four hours to reprice my inventory. So yeah. So there is, we're, we're talking about innovation and opportunity in the hobby. Like marketplace is right there. And I've, I've seen enough of TCG sort of like marketplace sides of things as it relates to like inventory management, like logging and tracking your collection um, that like gives me hope that you can take some of those platforms and translate it over to the sports card side of things. Cause like we're doing the best with what we got right now, but as it relates to marketplaces, it's um, it's not a fun user experience. That's for sure. So I, I just looked up ComC. Cause so I live in Seattle. I was like, where, I wonder where they are. They're on the backside of Redmond, which is kind of funny, but I've never been here, which is the reason I looked. Why do you think the, the hobbies are as separated as they are? Cause like my intuition, it, it feels like when I go into a, a, a game store, like sports cars feel very much like a, a good old boys club. Yeah. Almost. And not to say that TCGs don't, but it's definitely much younger than sports cars. Like the target demographic feels much younger. Um, I don't know if, that, I, I mean, I guess some extension of that is like baseball has also had a pretty hard time um, advertising to like a younger audience compared to yeah. basketball and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's so fragmented? Because at some level, like they're still functionally the same, but the cultures are so different. It's a great question because we all need to take a step back and realize that like, we're all nerds. <laughs> like whether you collect <laughs> sports cards or you're into TCG, you're a nerd to the like average ordinary person. Um, so like the quicker that we can come to, to grips with like, oh, I collect little pieces of cardboard with pictures of men on it. And you guys collect a little pictures of cardboard with imaginary creatures on it. I think the quicker we can bridge that divide. Um, but I think the other thing is people haven't looked at TCGs and sports cards as legitimate alternative assets. Um, and that I think they're starting to sort of bridge that gap and approach an understanding where sports cards, collectibles, TCGs, they all represent a real place where wealthy individuals can go and park their money. Um, Whereas like if you look at sports cards in the bubble that happened in the early nineties, people used to think that at one point, but there was a long time where that 
idea went away. Um, so I think as sort of legitimacy comes back, we all realize that we're nerds in this together and we can collaborate on the different ideas and platforms out there, the greater world will all be for it. So is it community perception then? Because like traditionally, you've always had people investing in artifacts, antiquities, paintings, you know, Van Gogh, Picasso, all this stuff. Um, they've always had held value to some extent, historical documents, all that kind of stuff. Is it just that sports sports cards are even old? Like what? what's the oldest sports card in the 30s and 40s, right? Even uh, before that, you had baseball cards that were inserted into chewing tobacco products. Well, not chewing tobacco, but just loose tobacco. Um, that was in the mid to late 1800s. So I think, I think if you look back at sports cards specifically, the, the king was always the 1952 tops Mickey Mantle. Um, that, the Honus Wagner... And now it's becoming like the 86 Fleer Jordan. And people are looking at those as sports cards, yes, but it also represents sort of a piece of Americana. And the reason that people want those for their collections and the reason that they drive value is because they're looked at as antiquities and artifacts. What you're seeing in sort of the modern card market is people projecting that value thinking that like the Bowman trout super fractor is going to be the antiquity that everyone's going to want 50 years from now, 60 years from now. So whether that ends up in the hall of fame or a museum or someone's personal collection, there's a lot of very wealthy people that want bragging rights, just like they would acquiring a Picasso painting or other artists <laughs> I'm, I'm just very curious and I, i'm like scribbling like mad on my little pads i'm gonna i'm gonna try and keep it to just one question because i know we got to move on uh but when we're talking about um like treating uh sports cards as asset classes or alternative asset classes isn't it and and please correct me if i'm wrong because i know nothing i just know my one sport very well um, don't all sports have different demand profiles, which almost demands they be treated differently, or do they actually have universal like similarities? Because that—that's what my mind immediately jumps to when yeah. I like start thinking about them. Now, the question you ask is sort of like, where does the value of a stock come from? And um, there is so many inputs that we could try and theorize. I think it, it, it comes down to the popularity in the sport, the popularity in the player. Um, and then you could like just create this massive list to come up with an algorithm to price out any particular card or any particular market. Um, but I think what's important to remember is that when we're talking about commodities and alternative assets, your sports cards are never going to create value and deliver value to you in and of themselves. Like they can't pay you a dividend. Uh, like Pikachu is not going out there working nine to five and sending <laughs> money home. Sure, sure, sure. Um, the, the reason that they are valued is because there's a collector somewhere at the end of the transaction that wants that for the collection. And when people are adding those to their portfolio, whether it's 
viewed as a legitimate alternative for investment or just a hobby, they're making a bet that the collector tomorrow is willing to pay more for it than the collector is today. So let's, before we move on briefly, kind of sit with that comment. Uh, collectibles, like you said, don't have any innate value. Right? They don't, there's no underlying value to them. How much of this, to some extent, right, you kind of have to buy into the system. So I don't want to make the analogy that there's, let's say, a quote unquote pyramid scheme, but it's often like everyone agrees that whether it's through artificial scarcity, that there's only so many available or that, you know, this is, I'm bought into the market. This is how the hierarchy works. This is how the system works. How much of that is, is, I don't know, like how much of that is actually real? Like, is, is it just a, a complete speculative house? Like, I don't know, like, is it just the house of cards? People are just continually stacking another floor on, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And if we could like hedge our bets and buy some put options on sports cards, <laughs> there's probably some markets that you would want to go ahead and do that. Cause yeah. whether or not these, these cards have long-term value, uh, needs to be taken on sort of a one-off basis. I think a big part of that is in terms of grading graded cards and what we'll probably jump into a little bit. But PSA has close to a 2 million card backlog at this point. What happens with your market dynamics when you double your supply of cards that are on the market? Like, I think if... People aren't careful, and by people, I mean whoever is in charge of sort of turning the faucet on and off at these grading companies about letting these cards out. You're going to see, you could potentially see a massive dilution in the value of graded cards because of what you just brought up. We, we, um, yeah, 100% agree. We talked. Some of the things that we outlined a couple months back as the pandemic was happening is there was obviously this massive economic downturn. Um, people were inside. Uh, people were kind of in times of volatility. It's very common that people revisit the things that, you know, all of the nostalgia driven things. People are at home looking at their you know childhood memories, digging out their closets, doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's interesting that I think a lot of the craze and really specifically speaking about Pokemon came from the fact that PSA was ironically bottlenecked. So for like mm -hmm. the three month period that had this massive demand, there were only like, maybe it's, maybe it's still thousands of cards a week being, you know, introduced into the system, but it's still only a drip of the actual supply. So for all we know, I'm sure there aren't hundreds of more, you know, gem mint 10 first edition base set Charizards, but like there's, there's a really good chance that the pops, like you're saying of, unlimited base sets of legend of blue eyes Yu-Gi-Oh of like a lot of really desirable stuff may double even triple just because everyone has seen it and they've been bottlenecked mm -hmm. so. now I think it's a question of the pusher the pull as it relates to market dynamics is the amount of cards that people want and desire that are being flushed into the system by these grading card companies going to outpace the number of new collectors, new investors that are coming in looking to acquire that. Because if you can bring in these new collectors, investors, and keep them interested in the hobby, this number doesn't really matter. Yeah. Like there could be 20,000 graded copies of a Luka Doncic rookie prism 
But if there's 70,000 people that want that card in a PSA 10, you're going to like let the market take care of what the price is. And the people that are looking to make some money are going to be very pleased. But if there's 70,000 Luka Doncic prisms on the market and there's only 20,000 interested buyers, well, then you got a big fucking problem because there are a lot of people that have their, their asses in the jackpot um, <laughs> that could lose a lot of money if that the latter scenario were to play out. Absolutely. And we've, we talk every week that like, there's just a huge difference between collectors and speculators. It's like, I currently, like, I'm a, I love collecting. I want to uh, have a set of early Pokemon. I want a full set of early Yu-Gi-Oh! But in a way of getting there, it's like you then participate in the hobby speculatively. So I have hundreds of cards of PSA right now, which my margin on is supposed is perceived to be very high. Um, but like you're saying, right, if, if the pops and whatever, if supply is going to outpace demand, then it might as well just be print. It's only going to be as valuable as literally the paper is printed on. So, yeah. In accounting, we have something, a concept called unrealized gains. Yeah. Um, unrealized gains look great on paper. They're attractive to investors. But unless you are able to realize those those profits and get the cash in hand, there's always some element of risk. And it ultimately depends on like your risk appetite. I have lots of friends that buy and sell sports cards and rely heavily on PSA grading to like put food on the table and they're really good at it. And they figured out ways to sort of have a healthy inflow of raw cards that they can send out to get graded. And I mean, I've probably sounded pretty critical of grading here today, but I still think it is the best vehicle to increase the value of your sports cards, your trading cards, because you're taking a market inefficiency in saying, I don't know what the, the condition of this card is. And you're giving people that safety, that security, that information for them to be able to transact on. Absolutely. What you were saying about unrealized gains, this is why my only collection are cards that I've already made money off of and that are already free. <laughs> but Well, that's move. the way you want to do it, right? Like you don't want to, I mean, I use a, a personal budgeting tool called YNAB, like you need a budget. And the, the concept is you pay today's bills or tomorrow's bills with yesterday's dollars. Like you want to set yourself up so that you're not putting any money into your hobby. You're creating a self-sustaining mechanism to fund what you love and enjoy. And some people are able to do that to such a, a high level of confidence and sort of effectiveness yeah. that they're able to turn that into their full-time job. Absolutely. Um, we, we just talked about this in grading, but any, on top of grading, is there any other um, aspects of maintenance, condition, or preservation of you know cards that you personally use or you think is worth looking into? Um, I mean, it depends on your card collection. If you're you're sitting there with a complete set of like first edition Pokemon cards in a PSA ten, like the advice that I'm going to give you is not good. <laughs> like you should be putting that in a safety deposit box or like a fireproof safe some, somewhere. Uh, but I think the important thing for just like everyday collectors and investors is keep your stuff safe, 
Um, always have in the back of your mind that like house fires and floods can happen and collectibles insurance is hella expensive and a lot of people don't go for it. So if you were in an emergency, which cards would you grab as you're running out of the house? Like, are you in a position to grab a, like a Pelican suitcase or something with your most valuable collectibles in it and run out the door? Or do you have everything displayed throughout the house and you would have to go into six different rooms to pick it up? Because if something were to happen, like we don't want to plan for our house to burn down, but there's always a small chance that that could happen. And when you're, you're talking about people that have collections in the tens of thousands of dollars, it becomes a real conversation that people need to have and something to discuss with like your significant other or your loved ones about how to keep those safe. Yeah. I won't go into the details of my collection for security, but it is not, it is not worth talking about. <laughs> it's, there's no plan. <laughs> I 100% have an understanding with my new wife here where it's like, this box is worth over $5,000. So if we have to grab something, yeah. we got to grab this one first. With these, these price increases in the market too, it's making significant, it's making available significant opportunities to people that like didn't have it. Like my wife and I recently purchased our first house and sports cards expedited that timeline by a couple months because I was able to sell it and put it into a down payment. We were in the right place in the right time, made the right offer. And now we're in a house that isn't quite the house of our dreams, but it is pretty damn close. So like having, having a great collection that you can be proud of is one thing. And then realizing that that collection can open doors and opportunities to other areas of your life is something that I don't think enough people talk about, um, but it should be central in sort of your buying and selling decisions on what could potentially be down the line. I paid for a lot of my college classes by flipping cards. Like it was absolutely huge for me and led me into the job I have now. So awesome. The dream. Yeah. Let's, let's get into the main topic here. Uh, collector's universe. Uh, we have talked about collector's universe on this pad- podcast several times, uh, mostly me, <laughs> but, but um, I think one of the, I originally found it. So I've, Everyone has known, I think, in in the hobby about PSA. Obviously, there's been a huge grading rush with the increase in prices. But um, one of the ways that I was doing, quote unquote, asset diversification is as I was selling cards and realizing gains, I wanted to put take money out of raw cards and put it in an asset that was still correlated to the collectible markets, but wasn't buying at what I believed at the time to be inflated pricing. So this was, I think, two months back. I've uh, and disclosure, I, I do own shares in Collectors Universe. I think my cost base is like $53 a share, which for this year is like not, it, it's nothing, right? They, you could have bought it at 12 or whatever in, yeah, in January, yeah. but still some somewhat of a nice gain. Last week, we get news that Collectors Universe is being purchased by Nat Turner and is going private. Um, so this is a pretty dense topic. I think there's like what happened here, what happened a couple months ago with like AltaFox Capital and a couple of stuff. But can you, in your expert accounting opinion <laughs> and your expert professional opinion, just give us like the overview of, of kind of the company, what has happened over the past couple of months and what this deal was? 
Sure. So I'll I'll try and boil it down to a sequential story um, and give some background on the company for anyone that doesn't have information. Collector's Universe is consistent of PSA, um, their coin grading business, and then some sort of convention center and online activity. Um, Historically, the coin grading and authentication service has dominated CLCT as a public company. Over the, the last couple of years, you've seen a steady uptick in the amount of revenue that sports cards and sport card authentication has brought into the company. That went parabolic back at the start of the COVID pandemic. And it's sports cards have significantly outpaced sort of the revenues that coins have brought into the company. Um, but along with that came the surge in cards that were being submitted and the inability of PSA to work through those submissions. And that really pissed off some of their bigger shareholders, um, one of them being Alta Fox Capital Management. Now, I covered this in depth on my channel. So if you guys want to break down, check it out over there. But the link will be in the description below. It's definitely worth your time. <laughs> the, the TLDR was you guys aren't using innovation. You're dragging your heels. Here's all the evidence that we have to point to like, you're just, you got the status quo. Um, in the hobby, there's a lot of hobby shops and dealers that are very old school. They're not willing to make a deal. They're not willing to try new approaches. And Alta Fox Capital Management thought that PSA was falling into the same sort of mindset. So they issued an activist investor letter that essentially threatened a hostile takeover if certain actions weren't taken. And if you look at their financials, they spent a couple million dollars on consulting fees to sort of coach them through how to handle this activist investor. And at the top of the demands was a request to put Nat Turner on their board of directors. So fast forward to last week and you have breaking news that a group of investors led by Nat Turner, Steve Cohen, who just purchased the New York Mets, and then a guy by the name of Dan Sundheim, who's the head of D1 Capital Partners, and he's been referred to as like the LeBron James of investing, come in and put an, an unsolicited bid in for the company of 70, I think it's 77.25 or 75.25, which at the time was like a 3% premium over what it had been trading at, but it was like a 25, 30% premium over the weighted average 60 day outstanding price. So the, the legal mechanisms to make that happen is um, CLCT needs to send out a proxy to their shareholders. And in Q1, the shareholders will vote on it. If over 50% of the shareholders agree to sell their shares to Nat Turner and this investment group, then they will effectively sell the company to that investor group who will then have a majority shareholder interest in the company and be in a position to take the company private. 
So a, a lot to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so it, uh, both Nat Turner and Lorraine Bardeen, I think, who's from Microsoft, I believe, got put on the board. Um, and in that letter is like pretty brutal. It's like everyone is yeah. really old and it's like, yeah, guys, no one has any equity, you know, da, mm-hmm. da, da, da. before um, removing the actual deal that just happened, it let's like, just what is a timeline? Do you think, hold on, how do I, how do I phrase this the best? Disregarding the deal that came in place, what does the timeline for Collector's Universe look like over the next 12 months if they just proceed as normal and try to work through this backlog with their new expanded capacity and, you know, I guess their existing infrastructure? Yeah. So if we take Nat Turner off the table and just pretend that it was Lorraine Bardeen and a couple other folks that were coming in, I think you see some incremental steps to Collector's Universe and PSA sort of writing the operational dysfunction. Um, You see them talking a lot about like expanding their space and adding new graders, but it takes a long ass time to train someone up um, to effectively and efficiently grade cards to PSA standards. So if they were looking to sort of apply Six Sigma and Kaizen principles (laughs) to like their operational structure, they were going to have to do it with technology. The only problem with that is when you're overhauling an operational structure, it's very capital intensive. The collector's universe didn't have a lot of money on their line of credit available to them. Like me, they were very risk averse. Uh, They were loading up on their cash balances, which often means that they're sort of afraid that there's a car- a dip coming and you want to sort of keep the stables warm for winter coming. Um, but I sort of looked at it as like, they're trying to get ready to for like a big capital investment that they're planning to make, but it was coming so slowly. million to keep the doors open, pay your bills and make what really needs a hundred to $200 million of capital investment. Um, It just isn't going to cut it. So they needed to do something. Um, A lot of the innovations that you saw from them, I thought were lip service. This is a company that took paper submissions until the middle of 2020. Um, (laughs) you can't say with a straight face that you're going to use robotics in a meaningful way and be on sort of the front end of developing these tools and solutions, but pivoting a little bit, this is where this new investor group can come in and make some waves. Like Nat Turner's background is in taking historically important industries that have operational dysfunction and using technology as a way to connect um, the opportunity in the market with sort of these legacy companies that need the help to have sort of a change in mindset and a change in approach to things. Now, he with Dan Sondheim of D1 Capital are coming in and they're providing the cash inflow that's really needed in order to make this happen. Uh, Steve Cohen 
again, he bought the New York Mets. He believes in sports. He has an art collection that's valued at over a billion dollars. He has alternative assets that he believes in and he parks his money there. Those are like the people that are coming in. These are the 1% of the 1% that are going to be deploying the strategic oversight of the company. Um, but they point, aren't going to be... Yep. To your point, billionaires who are also... Uh, so they, not only do they have the money, but they have the interest and background to actually drive organizational change as opposed to just some random management company. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Now... The issue with that is like they're very busy people. Nat Turner's portfolio of investments is 25, 30 companies long. When you see these board members, like we were alluding to at the get-go, that whose interests aren't aligned, that don't have any equity options, they're just doing the same old, same old. They're often former titans of industry that are like just living out their retirement days. Um they their full-time job is to be a board member and they serve on six to 15 different companies so if you're serving on that those many boards like how much effort and energy can you put into clct so that's sort of like the background but i think that the outlook that those three gentlemen have on the sport on sports one but on the sports card market and the trading card market in general. Um, I think it bodes well for the ultimate like end user. Cause they want to tap some value out of what they see in PSA's operational dysfunction. Um, and the way that you get value out of it is you grade cards more effectively, efficiently, and you create a dis different customer experience than what we're used to. So I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over a question just because I believe Zakiel will ask it better than I will. But uh, just just because I I'm curious because I am an average collector. Uh, how does this matter for the average collector? Just the, this whole shakeup. So time will tell. I think that's the like the cop out answer. But um, you're not gonna see real change. I'd say until the middle to end of 2021. I think the most immediate change would be a quicker sort of work through of the backlog at PSA. Uh, there's been lots of debates out by content creators on whether it makes sense for PSA to keep prices where they're at or lower prices. But I think that is, that's too short-term thinking. I think we can look at what PSA is now and where it'll be like we looked at Blockbuster and Netflix. So like, let that yeah, yeah. sink in for a minute. I have a card here. I don't know what it's graded. Right now, I need to package it up, make sure it's packaged up safely, and then pl place blind trust in a complete stranger that they're not going to lose my belongings, my possession, for them to put someone's opinion of what this should grade out onto a card. And if I'm lucky, I get to pay $15 to make that happen. And I'll get this card back in seven, eight months. Name me another industry or another market where that type of 
customer service is acceptable. It's, it's almost like you're, you're buying a second pack. From the, like you're buying the first pack to, to crack the card. And then after you've gotten lucky the first time, you're, you're re-rolling the dice on the table to try and win again. Mm -hmm. Because so many people are cracking the first pack. Now we got to have a second pack. So if we take that experience and we say, what would make it better and more fulfilling to someone that's opening that pack? How fulfilling would it be to like open up a pack of cards, throw it on your desk, pop open your phone, scan it and know whether that's a nine or a 10 based on centering, based on surface scratches, like the technology is there. Like there's augmented reality cameras and 5G have gotten good enough um, to sort of provide like the highest quality picture possible. And then you tease it out a couple steps. You can add that to an inventory management system where you like take a picture, it grades your card, you throw it in a, a, penny, a penny sleeve and a top loader. And assuming you didn't mess it up on the way in there, like you can have a high degree of confidence on what that card's gonna grade out. And then you see on your app, oh, like here's all the cards I just broke. Here's my collection that interfaces directly with a live market feed. So now you have the value of your collection in your hand immediately. Do you know the amount of like data entry and research yeah, yeah. that goes into like doing that yourself now? Yeah. The value that you can unlock there by just making people's lives easier and taking out those hours of like back and forth is what Alta Fox Capital Management was alluding to. Like, I think PSA got a little bit too fat and happy. They're like, we're the king. We can weather the storm. Like, there's no reason for us to change. But that's what happened to Blockbuster. Like, they thought no one was going to knock them off until Netflix figured out a way to deliver a better customer experience to the end user. Like these are, this is all pure speculation on my part, but this is the types of changes and the types of thinking that these three guys are bringing to the table. And anything short of that is going to be unacceptable for them. So if Joe Orlando isn't able to put these visions into reality, you're going to see a tech person quickly at the helm of PSA uh, for better or for worse. So for, I completely agree with you. Um, I will know we are talking about two things. I think like you were saying also the goal of efficiently uh, installing robotics, computer vision, it's really a computer vision problem to like figure out, okay, how can we accurately grade stuff? And then the extension of that is inventory management. And I know in another video, we were also talking about the integration of a marketplace and like all these things that could be step four, five, and six. Um, you also talked about Jorlando. Let's talk about the deal as it stands today. So $75 a share, um, obviously a huge premium over what it traded for. Um, but even previous to this announcement, the sh it feels weird to me. I know the, like the actual, the, the, the details of this deal are, are very reasonable and, and like a, a very solid offer. It feels strange to me. I'm not as sure, um, how these kinds of acquisitions have happened. I'm not as familiar with it, but offering a price of $75 a share when the current market price, I think previously was like 72 feels weird. 
with that said, do you think there will be any hesitation from investors to take this deal? So there's a couple things to unpack there. When these negotiations are going on, as long as it's not a hostile takeover, like there's board discussions, like confidential board discussions that are going on for months. Like after they worked through that Capital Fox at the Alta Fox Capital Management Investor Letter, I can almost guarantee that's when the phones were lighting up with Nat Turner and the investment group. So they probably offered a $75 buyout price when you had bought in, in the company mm. at $55, $60. What happened was the sports card market kept staying hot, Pokemon flared up, and then PSA and Collector's Universe reports record earnings. So it's sort of like, it's a good problem to have if you're a shareholder of Collector's Universe, because not only has the stock been performing, but the underlying fundamentals have been performing. And you just have an investor coming in that gave more than a fair offer based on where the company has been historically. At the beginning of the conversation, we were talking about how CLCT was like $12 last year. Yeah. I mean, you could have bought a, a rookie card of Ichiro Suzuki for $10 at this point last year. And now it's a $500 card. So I guess it's not fair to use that as a comparison, but um, to get back to your, your question about whether the shareholders are going to have any hesitation, it's easy to look at the stock market and think like, Oh, collectors like you or I, or even dealers have investments in CLCT. The reality is that those types of people make up such a small percentage of yeah, We have the, no capital. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's all institutional. Yep. So your institutional money, your um, your Black Rocks, your Wells Fargo, they come in and they buy up big chunks of companies in order to get exposure for their mutual funds and their ETFs and offer some sort of exposure to their investors. So unless you have a group of those institutional investors coming in and putting up a stink, I don't see there being any hiccups in sort of the approval process because BlackRock doesn't have any, any skin in the game. They want to see the transaction close quickly and efficiently so they can take their money, give it back to shareholders and redeploy it into another company, another equity for their shareholders. I haven't seen anything out in the market um, from any like finance type outlets that expresses concern that this deal isn't going to close um, at the current price. Like, would it surprise me if you needed an extra five or six dollars a share to sort of close the deal and get it done? No. Do I think it's going to be enough to derail the deal? I don't think so either. And I agree. I agree. Um, last question about this as well, uh, and kind of on this topic, there are some like, granted, so there are some like law firms that are saying we're investigating. I think from my interpretation of it is just like, if there's any vocal amount of shareholders here, we can be the ones to, you know, raise the sting to try to fight for the extra couple of dollars is what you're saying for. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, there are law firms. I, I forget what the exact term is, but this is sort of their job. They'll go out and they'll make some money and they might get 
like a couple million dollars out of CLTC to like go away quietly. But um, in terms of lawsuits on like for the company, what we haven't talked about so far is the trimming scandal. Have oh. you guys heard at all about where this company was a year and a half ago? So um, the, the answer is no. I do know, I think for both Beckett and PSA, I, I think maybe the Beckett issue, pardon me, the Beckett issue was different where like employees were grading their own cards, black label stuff. Um, yeah. But no, can you, yeah, please. Uh, yeah. So I'd say a year to a year and a half ago, um, there were some detectives at on blowout forums that identified cards that had been submitted to PSA and BGS for grading. They had come back as one grade, say like a vintage card and a four or five. Those cards were then resubmitted um, with their imperfections seemingly cleared. They had sharper corners, they had crisper edges, and they were graded in a PSA eight and nine. And there was definitive evidence that there were people that got these cards, cracked them out, altered the cards, submitted them to PSA, and then those alterations in those, like the, the cards that got trimmed were not identified they were regraded and then put back out into circulation with no way of being able to tell whether a card was altered or not. The um, undermines everything about grading. Like that's the, the one job. Yeah. Yep. So whatever Joe Orlando did to like stable, like keep the company on course and get all these like new grading submissions through that scandal is the reason that he still has a job today. But I think at its core, it just puts into question what the company has been able to do. And with, with like the trimming scandal, there was a bunch of lawsuits and class action suits that came along with that because there were people that were buying vintage cards for tens of thousands of dollars under the presumption that that is an original unaltered card only to find out from a freaking forum a year and a half later that it had been altered and the card they just bought for $200,000 um, was actually a $1,500 card that had been altered. So those are the types of fuck ups for, <laughs> for lack of a better word that could like really shake the trading card industry to its core. And it did like the, at the national sports card collectors convention, like the culprits heard about it from collectors, but somehow, some way people just forgot about that trimming scandal. And they were sort of seduced into the upside of what, grading cards can can give you and they gave PSA get out of jail free card. So there there's probably some lingering lawsuits from the whole trimming scandal that PSA will have to make good on, but I don't know how far sort of what to what extent those um those have been carried out so far. Rough. Big yikes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like can you imagine like pouring your life savings into a vintage card. Well, well uh, pa Ooh, no, pause right there. Don't do that. Uh, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say there's people that 
quote unquote, like level up their collection. Like they take a bunch of cards and consolidate into one thing. And if it has always been your dream to own like the grail in your eyes of a particular player and you buy the card in a high grade that looks good only to find out that like the card that you just spent your entire collection on has been altered. Like that is how you lose the trust of people in the hobby and collectors and people lose their asses. We were talking about the real life implications of your card collection. Like there are some people that use their collection to get that. There's other people that open up a bunch of credit cards to, to pay and make that happen and hope for upside down the line. Yeah. Same thing. It's tough. Anytime there's, anytime there's volatility and, and opportunities to make money, we saw it with Bitcoin two couple of years ago. I mean, we're seeing with Bitcoin now. It's just happened to being on the, it happens to be on the upswing. We've seen it in cards before. We're going to see it in cards again. Um, yeah. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Robin Hood day traders, man. That's yeah. not what we want to become. But um, I mean it. This is, this is an important conversation to have because you need to have a respect for what has happened in the hobby previously in order to take the steps necessary to avoid it in the future. Like, I'm not smart enough to say like how someone trimmed a card and how we can detect it in the future, but like there are people out there that have to figure that out because without the trust in these grading companies, it's sort of the pillar on which everything relies. I, I really think it boils down to don't put money into a marketplace, which you don't understand, but a hundred percent moving to uh, moving towards the closing segment here, just looking at the the future of the hobby. Where do you see the future of the hobby going in the next five years with in, in terms of technology, finance, playability, anything else? Yeah. So I think, I think you're going to see innovation at an unprecedented, an unprecedented click. So like, I don't know if you guys have heard of market movers or card ladder, but there's, they're sort of these, these startups that are re-envisioning the way that we have access to data, access to prices in our collections. Um, they're just like the first movers and they're being funded by people that are hobbyists and collectors at heart that saw an opportunity to like make some real change. What's going to happen when a venture capital fund that has $100 million in funding and the ability to flesh out a team of 25 to 30 people sees that same problem and they come in wanting to make some waves in the market? Now that like I know sports cards, there's, there's some discussion on what like the total market cap is, but you're talking $10 billion, $25 billion, $30 yeah. billion. Like that's just in the value of the cards. If you can create an experience around those cards, like there's a boatload of money to be made. And like for better or for worse for the collector, I think you're going to see that. And you're going to see these fractional investment opportunities in big money cards come in and it's going to attract like very high net worth individuals, um, which is going to drive the price of the highest end cards up. But what we need to remember is like the FDIC only insures up to $250,000, which like isn't a problem for most of us. But if you're sitting on 
$200 million worth of money, you need to do something with that money to make sure you don't lose value because of inflation. If it's just sitting somewhere, like you're losing money. So they're going to go to like real estate companies and buy up property. They're going to go to what they see as safe investment opportunities. And I think that sports cards is entering into that discussion on a, as a way that they can park that money for the future. So, uh, I mean, that sort of macro level where I expect the hobby to go, but it wouldn't surprise me if you see it take the same turn that sort of sneakers did um, and make our experience as the ultimate end user a better one. We've, um, first off, great. <laughs> Sweet. Um, it's funny because we've seen a couple attempts of that. There were some like Y Combinator efforts a couple over the past uh past year or two that didn't quite pan out um but to like i think what you just said is also a commentary on what we've seen in the markets this year right the bond yield is really low uh essentially like what two trillion dollars has been injected into the economy um there's been a huge rise in in the price of real estate like i think the this quote-unquote alternative investment class has really been a, a secondary it, it, I think the, the the rise of it has been like a secondary effect of all of the capital that's kind of been injected in the market. And similar to your saying, is trying to trying to find a way to outpace inflation. Like we need to, mm-hmm. it's it's coming. So it's so crazy to think about. Like Wall Street and Main Street are very far apart. Like there's there's so many Americans out there that are having trouble paying the bills and keeping the lights on and paying the rent. Meanwhile, you see the S&P 500 hitting like all time highs. I mean, like I've said this too many times tonight, but that could be its own separate podcast. And I'm sure personal finance and the MSNBCs of the world are tackling it. But um, very well said. Do you want to, or Chris, you can do the second Uh, one. Sure, 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 sure. Um, (laughs) So what role do you foresee collectibles playing in your life in about 10 years, if any? Uh, Well, hopefully we'll have, my wife and I will have a little one by then. Uh, And I hope it continues to just be a respite from the day-to-day stresses that life and the job brings on. Uh, Hopefully we aren't sitting in another pandemic here. (laughs) Um, But if we are, like, cards are a perfect way to sort of escape from your current reality and connect with those memories that little pieces of cardboard with pictures of men can only do. Maybe share them with the little one too, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Last question. And you, you touched on this earlier, but I want to kind of do it again. What is your one hot take for the future of collectibles or commentary on the world of collectibles itself? Oh man, I burned my uh, my hot take. <laughs> or you can just share it again. I think I I had mentioned that like we sports cards and TCGs need to come together and say like we're all nerds and, and recognize that. I think the hot take is like we're not the nerds anymore. Like it has been widely accepted. We're getting more mainstream coverage than ever before 
Um, I don't think RuneScape will ever not become a nerdy thing, but like sports cards are, are, are now mainstream. You don't need to be ashamed to bring it up in a professional setting that you collect and you buy and sell sports cards or trading cards um, because they are being widely accepted as something that's an adult hobby rather than something that kids do. And um, I think bringing your whole self to wherever you are is very important and being able to have a, a, an open and passionate conversation about your hobbies only makes collectors lives better and um, more enriched and fulfilling conversations with everyone they deal with. Excellent. How's that for a hot take? <laughs> there you yeah. go. Respect. We're Respect. not nerds. We're not nerds. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us this, this week. Um, can, if our listeners want to follow your content, uh, whether your YouTube channel or social medias, uh, where can they go find you? Yeah. Um, my YouTube channel is Cardi C Sports Cards. And then you can follow me on Instagram. I believe my handle is Cardi C Sports Cards there as well. If you got any questions, I'm pretty active on Instagram. So just shoot me a DM. Cool. Cool. And Chris, um, where can people find you? Two Chris's in the house. Again, this is like the <laughs> third time this has happened. But <laughs> Wolf of This history. is why also on my other cast, there's another Chris. I have to go by Wolf because this causes so much confusion. <laughs> um, y'all can find me. Uh, I don't, I, I'm old on the inside. I only have a Twitter at Wolf of Tin Street. Otherwise, you can always find me over at the, uh, the band community on Patreon. Uh, we'll focus on uh, mainly other TCG collectibles. Um, but, uh, you can find me there if you're on, uh, discord, I'm pretty much any TCG collectible outlet. Uh, if you just do at Wolf, you'll probably find me. Feel free to shoot me a DM. How about you, Zakiel? Cool. Yeah. And, uh, you can find me at rainy day collectibles online. Uh, I think almost everywhere and wherever this is being broadcasted. So <laughs> cool. Um, well, awesome. This has been another episode of the collect and spec podcast. Thanks so much for listening everyone. And we will see you next week. Cheers guys.